A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. I think probably every two years I read an article about some scientist who thinks there might be a way, building off chicken DNA or whatever, to figure out the DNA of dinosaurs and bring one to life. I feel like I run into these stories all the time. There were those scientists a couple years ago who were talking about how you could take Neanderthal DNA and use it to create new Neanderthals. Or this is, I think, the realest one going. I think this is an actual thing. There's a team led by a Harvard scientist trying to bring back the woolly mammoth. That's right, the woolly mammoth, and have herds of them tromping through the Siberian tundra. That's the actual plan. And... Can I just say, I know you scientists, you have your reasons, but whenever I read this stuff, I think, did you guys not see Jurassic Park? Have we learned nothing from the movies? Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. Thank you, Jeff Goldblum. Dr. Frankenstein collects the body parts of dead people, sews them together on a lab table, jolts them with some electricity, very showy electricity, dare I say. The creature comes to life and then does things the scientists did not anticipate at all unintended consequences, my friends. It's not just in the movies, by the way. Of course, as we all know, discoveries in subatomic physics left the lab. Decades later, we got nuclear bombs. Scientists constructed ways for computers to network with each other in the 60s. Now, half century later, we end up with Russians trolling our elections through social media. Cylons returned to Caprica to kill all the humans who invented them. Okay, that one's not real. But my point is the same. Unintended consequences. They happen when the experiment leaves the lab. And today on our show, we have three examples, three telling examples from three very different kinds of labs. One of them, okay, one of those labs is actually just a laboratory of human feelings. But still, from WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. Eklund breakout star. Okay, so we begin with this experiment gone wrong. Like I said, this is not a traditional experiment, not a traditional laboratory, but a laboratory of human emotion, one very familiar to lots of people. I'm talking about the reality TV show, The Bachelor. Been around for 23 seasons. Every season, of course, is romance made in a Petri dish. They throw in one guy, dozens of women. Each week, the guy ejects a few women from the Petri dish until there is just one left. And that's how it went, until last season, when, for the first time, one of the lab subjects, a very important one, escaped the lab with, yes, unintended consequences. One of our producers, Emmanuel Barry, tells what happened. I've been watching The Bachelor for years, and I've never seen anything like what happened on episode nine of season 23. There's this one moment that felt so real that I haven't shut up about it. Okay, so it's almost the last episode of the season. It's The Bachelor. So, of course, they're filming in a romantic location, a beautiful property in Portugal. The Bachelor this time around is Colton Underwood. He's 26, tall, sandy hair, handsome, a former football player. And as the show has mentioned a million times, he's a virgin. I could care less. Online, I saw fans of the show describe him as sweet and sincere. My roommate once called him America's Chicken Nugget. I'm here to fall in love. So hopefully by the end of this, I'm down on one knee. You could lose your The show is a Monday night tradition in my apartment. 
My roommate and I open a bottle of red wine, and for two hours, we enjoy some choreographed drama. Contestants who aren't there for the right reason, bachelors who didn't know it would be so hard, tearful eliminations. The entire thing, it's kind of silly. It's actually a total mess, but I'm so into it. So, back to that dramatic moment. It's nighttime in Portugal, and Colton has been dumped by the girl of his dreams. He has shut himself into his room. I'm done. I'm done with this. He says, I'm done. I'm done with this. Cue the most dramatic music. He throws open the door, and his hand is suddenly covering the entire TV screen. Then, this strange thing happens. Suddenly, the invisible TV crew becomes very visible. Cameramen find their way into the frame. Colton is running down the stairs. He's taking off his mic. And the producers start calling for Chris. Somebody get Chris. Chris Harrison is the host of the show, who's forever popping into scenes unannounced. And I always feel like, wait, why are you here? Colton's walking away from Chris, ignoring everyone. And then he reaches this big white fence, like an industrial security gate. It's maybe like eight feet tall. And without hesitation, in one powerful, graceful movement, he leaps up and pulls himself over. He's on the other side in a heartbeat. It's the type of move Captain America would do. And then Chris Harrison utters what is perhaps my favorite line in the history of The Bachelor. He just jumped the fence. Is there a button that opens the gate? The crew takes what feels like a while to actually get the gate open. And when they finally do, Colton is gone. He is gone. The bachelor has escaped. For three minutes, I watch as they search for him, calling his name. Someone starts whistling like they're looking for a dog. Colton! Colton! I have no idea where he went. They get into cars, and they're driving around, and finally, they spot him on the side of the road. I'm asking if you're okay. No, I'm not okay. Colton keeps walking away. Chris tries to get him to talk, manages to get him to walk toward a car, but Colton insists it's over. He says, I can't do this. I'm done. Then, commercial. And when we come back, it's the next day, and it's bright and sunny. And Chris Harrison is knocking on Colton's door to talk. And it all feels sort of normal. Hey, brother. What's up? How you doing, And I'm watching at home, and I'm confused. Like, didn't he just say he was done with the show? Yet here he is talking with Chris, okay? planning his next move on the show. It's never explained how Colton went from running away and quitting to being back in front of the cameras. Like, where did he go? How long was he gone? And most important, what made him decide to come back? Like, what actually happened? The TV show gave no satisfying answer to any of that. So, hey, Colton. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you doing? I called him. Colton says when he signed up to be The Bachelor, he'd already been on The Bachelorette. So he believed he understood how the show worked. I thought that I did. I thought that I had a lot of it figured out, and I was wrong. He explained that the whole fence jump goes back to a confusion of his own making. 
So on each episode, there are dates with The Bachelor. Some are one-on-one, some are big group dates, and sometimes contestants don't get selected for a date at all, which sucks because it's really the only time you get to spend with The Bachelor. And Colton told me something I didn't know watching the show, that to figure out who goes on these dates, producers are constantly checking in with The Bachelor to figure out who he likes. Like, one of the women he initially hit it off with was Hannah. They always asked, you know, to rank the girls. And very early on, Hannah was up there. um, And she got left off of a date. In other words, in the beginning, when there were over 20 contestants, this woman Hannah was his number one pick. But they didn't schedule a date with her. And I sort of recall, remember feeling a little burnt when they did that. I was like, so let me get this straight. Hannah's number one on my list right now, and she's not getting a date this week. So from there on out, I was like, all right, if you're going to do that to my top girls, I'm not really going to tell you who my top girls are because I don't want you messing with them. So in a weird way, I tried to defend myself and defend the girls by not being truthful to them who my top was. So even after Hannah stopped being his favorite. I just kept the top the same. So Hannah was always at the top of the list when I always made the list for them to see, and I never changed it. It's so interesting because it feels like you're, like, learning their game and then coming up with ways to sort of, like, either foil it or, like, protect yourself or, like, put yourself in a better position. Like, did you find yourself doing that throughout the entire process? Well, yeah. So, like, that that's just me wanting to set myself up for success. While Colton kept putting Hannah as his number one pick each week, the girl he fell for hardest was actually Cassie. How are you? You look amazing. How are you? I'm good. On a scale of one to hot, Colton is hot. I feel like we do have some chemistry, and I'm looking forward to just diving right in. She's got a surfer vibe, blonde hair, beachy waves. They had chemistry. But as a viewer, she didn't seem like a front runner. I kind of kept forgetting who Cassie was. I think with Cass, the best way to describe our relationship is it was such a slow burn. Um, And it was in a a weird way in the dynamic of the Bachelor franchise where it's supposed to be quick and fast and intense. It was sort of a relief to find a normal relationship in which it was a slower burn, in which it was was a more realistic approach to a relationship. And um, I don't, I think it was just, it, it was almost like when I was with Cass, it was like a breath of fresh air. So toward the end of the season, they're down to just three women. Cassie, his favorite, Hannah, who the producers think is his favorite, and Tasha, the token black girl. They're all in Portugal, and they each have an overnight date scheduled with Colton. But someone has to be eliminated by the end of the episode. I don't know exactly what the producers intended. They declined my request for an interview. But watching the show, it seemed like they were trying to get Cassie to quit. They threw a wrench in her and Colton's relationship. A wrench shaped like Cassie's dad. Colton had met Cassie's dad in an earlier episode when he asked for permission to propose. Mind you, he did this for nearly all the remaining contestants. But Cassie's dad said no. So I feel like as far as the hand in marriage, that would be a premature blessing. I see where you're coming from. That's not exactly what I wanted to hear. A week later in Portugal, Colton's certain about Cassie. Cassie's confused. Again, I have no idea what the producers were thinking. But when I was watching it, it seemed like they were forcing Cassie's hand. The show allows a special guest to visit. Later in that episode, her dad actually shows up, which 
nobody just accidentally shows up in Portugal. So the producers, <laughs> the producers paid paid a pretty hefty price to fly that man on out to Portugal to come visit and spend time with his daughter to give her clarity. Cassie's dad talks to her, and she decides to leave the show. There shouldn't be any hesitation in your mind when you meet somebody that you want to spend the rest of your life with. None. It's a lifelong decision. It's not something you make if you're unsure. Cassie decides to tell Colton at dinner. Normally during the dinners and during that, you know, the producers are are sort of hovering or they're around to help the conversation flow or they're there just to, like, bounce ideas off of, you know, when you guys are talking. When we had that dinner, there wasn't a producer in sight. Um, there was just the cameras and there was just the audios. Everybody else ran. Um, and they didn't want to be near it because I think they knew that I knew. Knew that they set him up, he means. At dinner, Cassie tells him she's leaving, and she mentions that her dad is here, in Portugal, and that they've been talking. Colton clearly has no idea that this was happening, and he turns as though looking for someone. Oh, I was thinking I just got screwed. (laughs) I was thinking that, you know, that wasn't her doing. I know what the format of the show is, and for me, hearing, hey, by the way, my dad came back, really, like, sparked something in me. I was like, okay... So I don't have the control I thought I had. If I feel like, you know, my relationship's going to be messed with or toyed with at all, I'm going to be done, especially at this point. I've completely fallen in love. I've completely, like, gave myself all to her. I mean, I had nothing to lose at that point besides the girl and the woman that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. So Colton's about to lose the girl that he loves. And in a perverse way, it's kind of his fault. When Colton started lying about who he liked most on his list... The show's not really built for that. It's as if an inanimate test subject suddenly became sentient. Basically, he compromised the entire experiment. He sort of played himself. I think that it backfired because then they were like, whoa, we thought it was Hannah because you kept telling us, like, even on your list, like, when you'd rank them, like, Hannah's won. And and so in the end, Cassie ends up basically sort of breaking up with you and leaving, yeah. right? Yeah. So we walk and... I just get up and we walk, start walking to the car. Um, and it was in the dark. Like there, I, I remember like there was a sidewalk we were supposed to stay on. It was like completely lit. And I was like, we're not staying on the sidewalk. Like I started right then and there. I was like, I'm not, I'm not doing showy things anymore. Like I'm not doing things just to go through the motion of being the bachelor. So, you know, I was starting to run through scenarios in my head as I put her, you know, in the van and said goodbye to her. I was like, all right, I'm going to go upstairs. I'm going to grab my wallet. First off, I got to get away from these people. I have to lose my mic. I have to lose the cameras. I have to, like, just be by myself. And my plan was to get out of there and go grab a new passport because they did have my passports. And I was like, I have <laughs> Wait, my wallet. You were like, I have, you're like, I'm going to go get a new passport? I'm done. I, I wanted to be done. I didn't want to talk to the people show. I was about to pay for my own flight to get home. Like, I was, like, I literally was done talking to everybody. So I went up. I grabbed my wallet. And... I remember, like, opening the door, and the first thing I see is, like, a camera right there. And if I had any regrets from the night, the only regret would be is actually hitting and putting a hand on the camera because that's not my property. But, you know, I was heated, so I hit the camera just to get it out of my way and go, went down the stairs. And uh, that's when, I like, I undid my mic. Um, and once I did that, I think they had an idea of what was coming next. And I, I remember, like, walking up to the fence... And I had no clue how to open it. I didn't want to wait for people to open it. So 
without hesitation, without even thinking, I was just like, screw it, I'm over this thing, let's do it. And I just gathered myself and jumped over the fence, fully expecting the other side to have people, producers, handlers, the food tent. I mean, the scale of this show is so big that there's people everywhere. Um, You can never get by yourself. I mean, there's so many hands on deck at all of these things. But I jumped the fence and there was nothing. Um, it was darkness. It was fields. And it, for me, I was like, this is awesome. So I was like, <laughs> I'm here. I was like, I don't want them to catch up. So I started running. Um, so you ran, you took off. I ran and I took off. And if, if like, I'm, I'm the worst with directions. Like, I'm very directionally challenged. And I had no clue where I was going. Um, I remember being having a ton of bright lights over to the left. So I was like, I'm just going to run towards the lights and hopefully I get there. Um, granted, these lights are like 40 miles away, 30 miles away. I was like, let's, let's do it. I was running in boots and tight jeans, which is the worst combination ever to run in. Um, and I remember hearing in the distance the producers start yelling my name. So I knew they were like chasing after me. Where, where did you hide? Like, you're a big dude. Like, were you hiding behind a tree? Were you in bushes? Oh, like, it was dangerous, too, because I had no clue what, what the laws were in Portugal. Like, I was hopping personal fences. I was hiding behind people's cars. Um, I was laying down in ditches. Um, and finally, I hopped through, like, a backyard, and there was, like, a chain-link fence. And all of a sudden, like, I hear... I hear these animals, and they sort of sounded like dogs. And I, I love dogs. I'm a big dog person. But this this was like an aggressive, like, growling, howling thing. And I like I was like, all right, this is probably a little dangerous. I probably am a little in over my head here trying to get back and find a passport. So I'll just turn myself in. I was gone for about a good two hours. You were gone for two hours? Yeah, it was, yeah, um, when it was all said and done. So he turns himself in. Not to police, of course. To reality TV, he does this by walking to the main road till someone finds him. When they do, he's still upset and overwhelmed and not ready to talk. So he plays the system. He says there's a rule that you cannot be filmed or recorded while talking to the show's therapist. So he asked for that. He says they talked for an hour while he vented and figured out his next move. And then finally, he was ready to talk to producers. What what was that game plan or that conversation like? Like, did they have to convince you to come back? Because you know, at that point, you were saying that you were you were done, right? If Cassie wasn't going to be there, you were like, you seemed yeah. very done, also. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So the yeah, game plan. what was what was the conversation like to get you to to come back to the show? Uh, so the conversation was, you know, well, obviously they just wanted to hear me out. They wanted to hear what I had to say, and then the game plan was to talk to Cass again. But I only want to do that after I talk to the other two women. The lab rat is suddenly running the lab. Colton wants to break up with the other two contestants so he can make it clear to Cassie that she's the one that he wants and they don't have to get married. This goes totally against the show's format. It means no final two, no big bro ceremony, no proposal scene. All of these sacred touchstones are just gone from the show. It's like watching the Olympics without the medal ceremony at the end. So you felt like you sort of had more power or maybe a little more leverage to have control when you went back. Well, I th- I think, I mean, I've, I think it was just me. They knew I was serious. Like when I say, it's one thing when leads say, okay, I'm done. Like it's okay, but like you turn around and you're in an interview the next minute. It's like you're, you're not done. You're right. You're sitting right in front of them. You're doing exactly what they want you to do. 
so they knew not to really, like, really cross that line. In the end, he gets what he wants. He talks to Cassie. They decide to date and not get engaged. Colton is still friends with the producers. And he says he and Cassie are still together and very happy. The promos for Colton's season of The Bachelor were all about the fence jump. They tease viewers with footage of the jump. My roommate and I watched every week, asking, is this the week he does it? There's a Twitter account dedicated to the question, articles guessing when and why it would happen. The week he finally jumped, we threw a party in my apartment. There was a cake with a fence. One of the things that I think is so sort of interesting about the situation is like, the, you know, the very big independent act that you did, which was deciding, like, to basically run away from the show, which um, hasn't happened before. Um, and then, like, that sort of act of independence got taken, and then that was, like, the promo for the season, right? Like, from episode yeah. one, it was like, when is Colton going to jump the fence? When is Colton going to jump the fence? Um, over and over again. Like, watching those promos, how did it feel seeing this moment end up being used like as a piece of plot that was sort of hard for me to deal with because in a way they're teasing it america is making jokes about it making memes about it and it like that's their number one marketing and selling piece Mm -hmm. meanwhile i know the seriousness behind it i didn't really real i didn't even know if they were going to put that in the show until obviously i saw the trailer of me jumping the fence and then i realized that they probably had to in the end The most disruptive thing that could have happened, driving your lead to jump over a fence and run away, was probably the best thing that could have happened for the TV show. Ratings for Colton's finale were up compared to the previous season. Which makes sense, because hopping a fence, it felt real. Those are the moments I like the most in reality shows. The rare moments of sincere emotion inside this artificial human experiment. Cameras everywhere, insane locations, over-the-top clothes... The producers can control all that stuff. Scientists can control the lab, but they can't control the results. Emmanuel Barry is one of the producers of our show. Oh, give me land, lots of land under starry skies above. Don't fence me in. Let me ride through the wide open country that I love. Don't fence me in. Act two, two times a lady. Okay, so a product is developed in a lab. Then after months and months, it's allowed out in the world for the first time. And it does something that its creators really did not intend. It somehow pits men against women, industry leaders against an inventor. Lena Mitsitsis reports. She was most of the way through 2018, and Laura Haddock was making something new. Biomimicry is literally translating human or biological movement, and we're translating that into micro-robotics. So we've actually created brand new mechanical workings that have never been created before. Laura knew that what she and her team were working on was innovative, but it wasn't until her newly appointed publicist encouraged her to submit it for awards that she really started seeing her new invention for what it was. That day, she looked at us and she said, you need to apply for tech awards because this is serious tech. And 
I mean, you guys just made a robot. A robot named Osei. Osei left its lab in Oregon, sent out into the world for the first time to apply for this award. An innovation award at CES. That's the Consumer Electronics Show, one of the largest trade shows in the world, with more than 170,000 attendees in recent years. Run by the Consumer Technology Association, the CTA, tens of thousands of new tech products debut at CES. Among them, historically, are the VCR, the camcorder, the game Tetris. Winning a CES award is game-changing. With it comes industry-wide promotion, product listings in CTA's trade magazine, and the chance to showcase your product beside the most buzzed-about products at the expo. It's a very big deal. It took about a month to get all of our patent documents together that we were submitting, and and then we put everything in, and then we kind of sat and we waited. And there's a handful of judges that are experts in robotics and drones, and they decided that Osei deserved an award. And we got that that email, and I... I I think I literally went running through the office, like yelling at all of our engineers and pretty sure some people cried. And it was it was just absolutely astounding and felt so validating. The Osei is a robot, a robotic sex toy. There's no way to talk about this without acknowledging the existence of sex and the body parts typically involved. So if you're listening with kids or you don't want to hear about it, this might not be the story for you. Okay. According to its inventors, what makes the Osei different from other sex toys is that it conforms to each user's particular dimensions, stimulating both the G-spot and the clitoris, resulting in a blended orgasm, which is an internal and external orgasm together in the same person at the same time. And then you go, holy shit, that was awesome. (laughs) And then do you like... Do you do it again or like Of course you do it again. <laughs> <laughs> you, then you do it again just just for good measure. The biomimicry part, what's being imitated by the robotics, is what Laura calls the come hither motions made by a sexual partner's hands, mouth, or both. For Laura and her team, which was largely made up of female engineers, the award meant a frenzy of activity. The OSE was still in prototype, meaning the design still needed to be finalized. The marketing and the product launch still needed planning. I was in an engineering meeting, um, and my phone went off, and it was our publicist. And I stepped out, and I got on the phone, and I said, is everything okay? And she goes, are you sitting down? You need to sit down. And she tells me that they are revoking our award. She got this news in an email. Apparently higher-ups got to talking. And they said, when we had this bigger conversation, we decided that we are going to revoke your award. Um, And uh, we're very sorry to have made this mistake. I I literally feel like this right now. I, I, I welled up. I was heartbroken and angry, and very confused. The email referenced a CTA policy that products deemed by CTA to be immoral or obscene or indecent or profane or not in keeping with CTA's image could be disqualified and that CTA reserves the right to disqualify any entry at any time. 
Laura couldn't help but notice that CTA had very recently been fine with other sex toys, so long as they were oriented towards penises and the people those penises were attached to. In 2017 CES show, the company Naughty America exhibited virtual reality porn. You'd put on a headset, choose from one of three boy-girl scenes, each of them through the eyeballs of the male. In one, you're a guy on a workout bench, and a woman in yoga pants does squats over you. Then you have sex. And at a media partner show at CES, the creator of Real Doll showcased his electronic sex doll, Harmony, who comes with a removable mouth insert that can be washed. Harmony can also be programmed to tell you that she loves you and to exhibit character traits like jealous, insecure, unpredictable, or helpful. Laura took inventory of all this and the fact that Osei got banned. And very quickly came to the realization that it had everything to do with the fact that it's an adult product that is geared towards uh, females and people with vaginas and... We wrote a letter back to the CTA stating that this is basically that this is absolute crap. This is wrong and you know it. And uh, they stood by their decision. They said, we're very sorry. There was a misunderstanding. We did not realize um, what the nature of your product was. And that I did not buy for a second because we looked at our application the very first sentence of our application, the very first sentence says this is a robot to elicit a blended orgasm that stimulates the clitoris and the G-spot. So there's no, there's no questioning what kind of product this was. CTA has had a pretty tumultuous on-again, off-again relationship with the sex industry for decades. For a long time, sex was actually part of the trade show. Remember VHS tapes? Some of the first people to make the leap from film to VHS were porn people. And porn viewers were excited to watch porn from home instead of adult movie theaters and booths in the backs of stores. And CES wanted to connect content creators with tech manufacturers. It was lucrative. So they let porn companies display at their show, but there were strings attached. All adult content was relegated to an entirely different building from the rest of tech. Porn was still a part of CES, but to get to it, you'd have to leave the Las Vegas Convention Center and go to the Sahara, which was a casino more than a mile away. One of the main porn people back then was Paul Fishbein. He founded AVN, Adult Video News, the quintessential trade magazine of porn. You go up a little, a little stairwell into this ballroom, and the booths were like any other booth that you would see in any other trade show. And people would have posters of movies and they would have TVs that would play softcore clips from the movies. And they would have, you know, tables for porn stars to sit and sign autographs. What were some of the big movies in the late 80s, early 90s? Now you're really, now you're really pushing. Um, hold on a second. <laughs> we're talking late 80s. Yep. Um. John Stalliano started his first Buttman movie in 1989, The Adventures of Buttman, and he went on to become a major player. And even though Night business trips, was good, tensions arose. Movie, Porn Wells, exhibitors grew resentful. They were being charged the same participation costs as other tech companies, but they weren't getting the same marketing or show placement. And then things came to a head in 1998, 
when CES put up signs by the sex industry section bathrooms that said, stop, these restrooms are shared with exhibit personnel in the adult software area. You may choose another bathroom. Thank you. As porn veteran Bryn Pryor, who was also AVN's managing editor back then, told me in an email, the implication of those signs was that sex workers might have, quote, diseases or molest you or shit on the floor. The next year, 1999, the divorce. Porn splintered off from CES. AVN began hosting their own expo only for adult content. And for a while, they still held it the same weekend as CES. CES, meanwhile, banned porn from their show, though, obviously, some sex stuff still found its way onto the show floor. Which brings us back to 2019. With her tech award gone and her sex toy robot banned from CES, Laura wrote another letter, this one an open letter, and posted it to Osei's website on midnight, January 8th, the day CES was starting in Vegas. Our very first bit of coverage um, surfaced at right about 9 a.m. And all of a sudden, like, the floodgates opened. The story was picked up by Fast Company, The New York Times, Fortune, Gizmodo, Glamour, Cosmo, Wired, The Guardian, and more. Headlines like women's sexuality is still taboo for tech were popping up, and sex toy debacle reveals shameful double standard at CES. A month later, in February, Laura gets an email from the assistant to CTA president Gary Shapiro. He says Gary Shapiro would like to talk to you. Can we schedule a phone call? And... I mean, at that point, I'm I'm nervous. I like, what does he want to talk to me about? Okay, we get on the call, and the first thing Gary says is, "I owe you all a very big apology. Uh, we did you a great disservice, and um, and we're very sorry for for what's happened. And we realize that we've made we have made a mistake." Laura and her team were being given their award back. At the end of the press release came a promise of new and updated policies. They'd make CES a more, quote, welcoming and inclusive event for all. The first new policy was that they'd include sex products in the CES show on a one-year trial basis. It was not clear why they called this a new policy, since sex products were actually in the show the previous year. They said these products would now be in the category health and wellness. And they rolled out one other new policy to address something else they'd gotten a lot of criticism for in the past. They instituted a dress code. Quote, Booth personnel may not wear clothing that is sexually revealing or clothing that reveals an excess of bare skin or body-conforming clothing that hugs genitalia. What CES was trying to address was booth babes. Booth babes and CES have always gone together since the 1960s. These are models in revealing clothing, or body-conforming clothing that hugs genitalia, hired to stand next to the tech on the show floor. In a 1986 story for the Toronto Star, Jonathan Gross wrote, quote, the quality of the products was inversely proportional to the chest size of the booth babes handing out the literature. Paul Fishbein sold AVN years ago to pursue a career in mainstream TV. But when I told him about CES's new policies, he wasn't surprised at all. Uh, it's the same thing. It's, it's the 2020 version of everything we just talked about. Nothing has changed. Sex 
scares them. I reached out to CES for comment. They put me on with their executive vice president, Karen Chipka, but there were conditions. CES wouldn't speak with me about the history of their show, the history of sex tech at their show, Laura's product, the award it got, the award being taken away, or the award being given back. All I could ask about was the future of CES. It was a short interview. But there was one thing she said that helped shed a little bit of light on their decision-making. I asked, what would it take for sex to not come back in 2021, after the one-year trial? And Karen told me that CES's priority is to make everyone who attends the trade show feel welcome. As long as her 175,000 attendees aren't offended by seeing sex products at the show, sex products can stay. So that's the goal. Satisfying everyone. Laura, the inventor, she told me that CES actually consulted with her about what category to put sex products into for this one-year trial. CES's instinct? Do it like they used to. Sex in its own category, in its own room. And I pushed back on that really hard uh, because... I didn't want to be sequestered off in the corner. So she argued for sex toys to fall under the health and wellness category. But me, I don't know if I agree. When I think of the sex toys that I have used in my lifetime, I probably can't say on the radio. When I think of like the sex toys that I have like been aware of in my lifetime, the point, as I understand it, is pleasure. And I think it's okay for products to be marketed to women simply for the fact that they create pleasure. And I I actually just, I wonder why health and wellness, I wonder why it couldn't just be in a category called pleasure. Why isn't pleasure just good enough? It is pleasure. But um, as far as I read it, pleasure is also a part of health and wellness. In this one area, Laura's agenda is a lot like CES's. They both want to sell sex. And CES's old solution to the problem was to segregate sex in a separate room, in a separate building. But Laura doesn't want to risk losing anyone. She wants to sell to everybody, on the main floor, with the mainstream products. And if calling her sex robot a health and wellness product gets it out of the lab and into the world, she's fine with that. It's still hidden, just in a different way. Lena Masitsis is one of the producers of our show. Coming up, woman puts on a suit that turns her invisible. What could possibly go wrong in that scenario? That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This American Life, Myra Glass. Each week in a program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show... Escape from the Lab, stories of the unintended consequences. Yes, unintended consequences when a lab subject leaves the lab and heads into the bigger world. We've arrived at Act 3 of our show, Act 3, Fraught Couture. So we end our show today with a piece of fiction that was actually written for this episode of our show. In fact, we had this story and then we went looking for the other stories to put with it. It's by one of our co-workers, Neil Drumming, and it's read for us by actor Susan K. Watson. The clerk at the sporting goods store in Georgetown eyes me like I'm taking a dump in his trail mix, like a black woman can't purchase camping gear. I toss my new overpriced L.L. Bean rucksack on the counter with the rest of the stuff, hoping Chet will just ring it up and keep his opinions to himself. 
Hell, what I really want to do is reach under my collar, power up the special adaptive camouflage on my suit, and poof, disappear right in front of his stupid face. But A, I've been a little wary of cloaking since the incident. B, the suit's in the trunk of my car. I'm all Ann Taylor business casual for my meeting today. And C, Chet and his stank eye are not entirely off base. Truth is, I don't know how to use most of the stuff I'm buying. I was always more of an indoor kid. The whole private military super soldier thing is kind of a fluke. I shove the gear into the trunk of my Honda Civic A2, climb in on the passenger side, I'm old school, and recline the seat back as far as it can go. I speak the destination, and the A2 quietly shifts into drive and pulls out. We've got some time. Let me tell you how I got here. I came out of college doing administrative work for defense subcontractors. Data analysis, asset forfeiture, anything to pay Howard University back and support my impressive weed habit. By my early 20s, I'd built up a pretty high level of security clearance for a civilian. I was bored behind the desk, though. The first time a field agent let me hold his gun, I was like, yes! I jumped from agency to agency, DEA, FBI, ICE, and then I pulled a gangster move. Remember Class 8A, the government's now defunct development program for disadvantaged businesses? I launched my own minority-led private security company. You know how we do. The world had basically been imploding since 2020, and the U.S. defense tap was wide open. Me and my guys started to piece together a living wage doing black ops work, Latin America, the Mideast, most of it pretty unsavory. Surgical hits, regime change. I learned the secret to doing dirt. Do it and walk away. Don't feel anything. I got good at it. But the bigger firms like DynCorp and Sierra kept muscling us aside, snapping up the best jobs in all the global hot zones. That all changed when the suits came out. This was a few years ago. The DOD very discreetly announced that they were looking for subcontractors to field test some new nano-engineered adaptive camouflage uniforms. No cool acronym. They were for stealth use in ground conflicts. The suit was made entirely of a melanin-based polymer. It was synthetic melanin whipped up in labs. But that didn't stop me from raising a fuss in the right circles. I played the race card as hard as I could play it. I mean, the U.S. military was beta-testing high-tech leotards fashioned from the souls of black folk. Someone in the Defense Department had to have enough PR savvy to understand why they couldn't do that without handing one to the premier intersectional mercenary in the business. Me. And so I leveled up. The A2 pings me as we pull into the parking lot in Pentagon City. That reminds me, I'm gonna have to ditch old girl. I'm playing it too sloppy as it is, running errands in my own car and so close to headquarters. Besides, something tells me autonomous automobiles don't make great getaway cars. Security waves me through the lobby, staring at my chest in lieu of asking for ID. I'm not gonna miss that. Nor will I miss the bland 90s pop cocktail playing in the elevator. 
Gina's sitting rigidly behind her desk as I walk into her office. I'm not worried. I know why I'm here, why she called me in. She's going to tell me that two weeks ago, there was an incident involving the accidental shooting of a civilian noncombatant in Bamako, Mali. Then she's going to inform me that there's to be an official inquiry into the incident and by which agency. Finally, she's going to lean in, narrow her eyes, and ask me firmly if I had anything to do with said incident, because she knows that I was in Bamako two weeks ago shadowing possible members of a radical insurgency. That's her job as my official DOD liaison, to know where I am at all times, at least as often as I decide to tell her. When Gina and I are off the clock, tangled up in her cozy two-story house in Southeast, I like to call her my handler, then roll out of bed before she can catch me and debrief me. As you were, she yells before jumping up and chasing me down. That I'm gonna miss. Gina tells me to shut the door behind me. Then she says everything I think she's going to say, except not the way I think she's going to say it. Her voice is trembling. She's worried about me. Jesus, Gina, there you go overreacting again, I think to myself. I mean, the situation wasn't good. It was a shit show. But as military clusterfucks and hostile dust bowls go, it wasn't unusual. Really, it was just cross signals. U.S. Special Forces had surrounded the guy's house not knowing I was inside. I mean, how could they? I want to tell Gina not to worry about me anymore. But then she'll want to know what that means. So instead, I say what I've been planning to say since I put on my Ann Taylor blouse this morning. I wasn't there. It sucks that that happened, but I wasn't there. Gina's quiet. My hand involuntarily reaches for my shirt collar, hoping to find the neck of the suit popping out. Then I remember I'm not wearing it. It's in the trunk of my car. They airlifted him from Bamako to Walter Reed for observation, she says. What? I snap. The civilian from Mali. He's at Walter Reed Hospital. I thought he was dead. I thought you said you weren't there. I say nothing. He's in a coma, she says. My mind races back to that day. There was a lot of blood. I thought he was dead. Kelly, barks Gina, as if saying my name will lasso me into this moment. We've received reports that for days the man had been telling friends and neighbors that he thought he was being haunted. What are you talking about, I ask. Like a man or woman that he could only see out of the corner of his eye when he wasn't really looking watching him, following him. That's what he said, like a ghost. I wasn't there, I repeat. I see Gina's hand about to move toward me, but I'm already backing away. As I head for the elevator, I take small solace in the knowledge that when they come after me, they won't send her. I didn't shoot the guy in Mali. I was in the house with him, sure. But by then, I was wrapping up the investigation. He was no insurgent, not even a threat. Just a cagey dude waxing too political on Snapchat. Besides, I was anxious as hell to get out of there. Honestly, I've been feeling off since I first touched down in Africa. When I was wearing the suit, I was jumpy. I was hearing things. I felt overstimulated and hyper-aware. And I was starting to feel things. 
like other people's feelings when they passed too close to me in the street. The guy whose house I'd been snooping around, I could sense his fear. I didn't like how it felt, being inside other people like this, even if it was helpful. Like, like when the special forces squad creeped on the house, nervous as hell, I felt them coming. It's like they were vibrating outside of their bodies through the walls, and I was an antenna. That's why I went outside, to talk them down. The suit's camouflage isn't perfect. Wearing it, I'm nearly impossible to spot in dark or busy areas. But if you stare right at it, it's like someone smudged reality with a Photoshop brush. A moving distortion in space-time. I walk calmly out the back door. But before I could pull the hood down and put my hands in the air, one of the Special Forces guys saw the smudge and let one go. At the moment I heard the pop from his rifle, I felt a surge of, I guess, resistance that started in my chest and forced its way out through my pores. And when that wave reached the suit, it's like the suit radiated that force outward 50 times stronger. The bullet ricocheted off my shoulder, through the door, and into the house. I heard the civilian non-combatant scream and fall to the floor. I don't know what he said, but I know what he felt. It was as clear to me as if he'd whispered it right into my ear. Ghost. Since Africa, I've been doing some research on the origins of the suit. As far back as the 90s, the military had been pouring money into researching melanin. It was known that certain birds used the chemical to change color, so it was a no-brainer that defense would be looking at it as a way to camouflage troops. Some scientists also hypothesized that it was melanin that gave bloodworms their incredible jaw strength. But I don't know shit about bloodworms. What I do know is that the suit was not designed to stop or repel bullets. It's not armor. Something is happening. The suit is changing, evolving. And I think it might have something to do with who's wearing it. I know this is going to sound crazy, but when I was a sophomore at Howard, this senior with an onk around his neck used to follow me through the quad calling me queen and preaching to me about the principles of comedic spirituality. I bet he would have had a field day with this suit. He'd say the concentrated melanin must be amplifying ancient African mysticism or whatever. He'd say the suit was helping me channel my ancestors. Hell, he'd probably paint a Sankofa on the chest and teach himself how to fly. He was full of that kind of bullshit. Me, I'm thinking this suit never should have been made at all. That it's the result of cocky science assholes and soldiers hacking into natural power they don't understand and can't control. From the few very guarded conversations that I was able to have about this without setting off alarm bells over at the Pentagon, there is only one other person successfully deployed with the suit who ever reported side effects like mine. That brother, a tough ex-Marine from South Philly, is currently doodling on the wall at a psychiatric hospital somewhere in New Mexico. The hospital staff won't go near him. They say he can tell you what you have for breakfast or who you're fucking just by looking at you. That's not going to be me, stuck in some psych ward somewhere, David Blaine to a bunch of orderlies. That's why I'm running. 
After Molly, I knew I needed some time alone with the suit to figure out exactly what was going on, what it was doing to me. I figured I'd do some beta testing of my own. I'd go off the grid, head west, maybe even make my way to New Mexico or San Diego where a lot of the original melanin research was done. No one's supposed to know about the suits. Not foreign governments. Folks in the White House don't even know. So I knew that if I took off with it, someone would come looking to take it back. Until this morning, I was pretty confident I could stay gone. But now, I have another item on my to-do list, and I have to take care of it before I can leave. I meant what I said to Gina about this sort of eyewitness who was currently convalescing in Bethesda. It sucked that he caught wind of me. It sucked that he caught a bullet that was meant for me. Hell, it sucked that he'd gotten caught up in all this at all. But coma or no coma, he was proof, literally living proof, that I'd been at the center of that mess in Mali. And everything I'd learned over the years about how to do dirt and get away clean told me that this was simply not something I could let go. He was a loose end that needed to be tied off. Slipping into a secure military hospital sounds difficult, but not when you have a top-secret cloaking device or when everyone inside already thinks you're a nurse. I'm on the right floor, in the correct ward, before I even have to put the suit on. I stare at it for a minute. It's an impenetrable, impossible matte black. But at the same time, if you gaze into the fabric, it's every color in the spectrum. Feels good to put it back on. I realize as it bonds to my skin that I've been missing it. I feel stronger, like twice myself. I shake out of this Bilbo Baggins moment and exit the bathroom stall. I sneak easily around the two schlubs who got stuck guarding a coma patient and enter the Molly guy's room. He's alone in his bed, breathing slowly through a tube. Machines chirp all around him. I approach the bed and check the name on the chart. John Doe. Of course. Luckily, I'm wearing psychic pajamas. I lean in and put my hand over his and... Whoa. This is new. His memories come rushing at me. It's like his mind pours up through the sleeves of the suit and into mine. It takes me a second to slow it down. His name is Umar. Wow. I really underestimated this guy. I flipped through his recent past like a carousel slideshow. The entire time I'd been watching Umar and Mali, he'd been watching me, or trying. He'd actually caught a few glimpses of me at my sloppiest, circling around behind him to see who he was texting, sliding into his room as he drifted off to sleep. He'd been looking right at me as the bullet bounced off me and struck his skull. He's gonna recover from that, by the way. His vitals are good. I find myself thinking, maybe I don't have to do what I came here to do after all. It's not like he actually saw my face. So what if he wakes up and tells a few more people he saw a ghost? What's the harm in that? The thought surprises me. I'm used to cleaning up after myself. But I'm also relieved. I back away from the hospital bed thinking if I leave now, I'll still have a pretty good head start on whatever spooks are chasing me down. That's when it occurs to me. I can't just leave him here. 
The people who are coming after me have way more to lose than I do. If they're ready to kill me for stealing the suit, they'll take Umar out just for knowing about it. I'm still holding his hand. I squeeze his fingers, scan his dark features, and then I realize I can't let that happen. I have to protect him. The thought really freaks me out. It seems to come from somewhere deeper inside me than me. Pulled up to the surface by... by... Oh, shit. It's the suit. I know it. First it has me reading minds, and now I'm supposed to care about this guy? Not convenient. Not cool. I could die right here today fighting for some African dude I don't even know. All because of a double extra strength dose of melanin. I get a text from Gina that reads simply, As you were. I know she means they're coming and I should run. I don't. I move to stand between Umar's bed and the door. I've got no weapon, and my hand-to-hand combat training is rusty as all hell. Pray the ancestors can help me with that. I take off my earrings. Susan K. Watson, reading a short story by Neon Drumming. Susan is in the TV show This Is Us, which has a new season, and she's in the Mr. Rogers film with Tom Hanks. It's coming out soon. From my heart and from my hand, why don't people understand my intention? Our program is produced today by Neil Drumming. The people who put our show together include Emmanuel Berry, Susan Burton, Sean Cole, Jessica Lassenhop, Miki Meek, Lena Mitsitsis, Don Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Nadia Raymond, Robin Semyon, Louis Sullivan, Chris Rister, Talamat Tierney, and Nancy Updike. Our managing editors, Diane Wu. Our executive editors, David Kestenbaum. Special thanks today to Carrie Morgan, Alvin Mella, Peter Warren, and ABN, Zoe Ligon, Wendy Zuckerman, Caitlin Sori, and Lois Drabkin. Original music for our science fiction story in the third act was composed by Blue Dot Sessions, Ricardo Gutierrez, and Andre Taylor, our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can stream our archive of over 680 episodes for absolutely free. There's also videos and tons of other stuff there. We'll get our app, which has all that stuff, and also let you download as many episodes as you want. Again, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Troy Maliti. You know, he's complaining this week about how boring weddings seem to him these days. And he got all, I don't know, he got all nostalgic about how they were so much more fun back in the 70s. And they would have, you know, tables for porn stars to sit and sign autographs. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. So